there's no afterlife. Jesus didn't exist, and God is just a figment of our imagination. Is this the doctrine for a 21st century Christianity? Hello, and welcome to the A-Level RE podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about anti-realism. Unlike some of my other podcasts, which link directly to the teaching materials available on the A-Level RE blog, this is much more of a meander around various different parts of the A-Level course and beyond, bringing together key ideas a bit like a philosophy jigsaw and investigating a bit more deeply into some of them. There aren't any questions at the end, so you can just listen and enjoy. With congregations on the decline and fewer people labelling themselves as Christian in the UK, we're going to question whether it's time for the church to reassess its position regarding traditional doctrine in order to reflect the views of today's society, a society which may struggle to reconcile the supernatural elements at the heart of the Christian faith with the realism of a modern world view. Indeed, is it possible to reject the reality of the central truth claims and still call yourself a Christian? I spent a few years living in the Netherlands and I realised that a growing number of churches there are doing just that. There's a growing conviction that in order to stay relevant to the 21st century mindset of society, adaptation of the traditional doctrine is necessary if Christianity is going to survive in a modern world. According to a study carried out by the Vrij Universiteit in Amsterdam, one in six members of the Dutch clergy, that is, ordained ministers, would describe themselves as agnostic or even atheist. One in six. Among them is the Reverend Klaas Hendrikse, who denies the possibility of a physical afterlife and questions the existence of God as a supernatural being. As for the Gospel accounts, Hendrikse views them as mythological stories about a man who may or may not have existed. Hendrikse is certainly not alone. A wider church study found that such views are held widely within the Protestant Church of the Netherlands, as well as smaller denominations too. But what are the theological and philosophical reasons for this growing rejection of religious realism? Now, if you've been listening to some of my other podcasts, you'll know that realism is concerned with what exists out there, rather than just in our heads. For the religious realist, God is a transcendent, divine reality, existing independently of human thoughts or actions, the creator of the universe and cosmic lawgiver, a God who has revealed the moral law to his people and administers justice accordingly. For centuries, philosophers and theologians have grappled with the idea of realism when it comes to a transcendent, timeless God. The classical proofs for the existence of God, claims of religious experiences, miracles, revelation, intercession, and the responses to the problem of evil are all centred around the concept of a God who exists out there. But what the Dutch churches are suggesting is that we change our perception of God from that of realism to that of anti-realism. In its most basic and simplistic sense, anti-realism says that God is a fiction, a figment of our imagination. An imaginary friend, 
but one which serves a specific and a fundamental purpose. But if God is simply an invention of our human minds, dreamed up and imagined, then that has serious implications for many areas of traditional religious belief. It challenges the central truth claims of Christianity and calls for a reimagining of their true meaning. The Trinity, the crucifixion and resurrection, the miracles of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. For the anti-realist, there is no judgment, no afterlife, no heaven or hell, no ultimate divine plan. So, in what sense is it possible to claim to still be a Christian if the fundamental heart of the faith is denied? According to William Lane Craig, it's not. He says, clearly, a Christian cannot take such an attitude toward God. Such a person would in fact be an agnostic or atheist. A God which is a useful, fictitious posset cannot be counted on to ground objective moral values or impart objective meaning to our lives, nor preserve us beyond death and bestow eternal life. Such a make-believe God is a pious delusion. However, there is a significant body of scholarship which claims that it's not only possible, it is in fact a better way to understand the teachings of Christianity. Perhaps the most well-known proponent of an anti-realist view of God and Christianity is Don Cupid, who in 1980 wrote a book called Taking Leave of God. It was a surprising suggestion for someone who is an ordained priest in the Church of England. However, for many people, Cupid put forward a view of Christianity which was not only more compatible with a modern mindset, but one which also overcame some significant theological issues, such as the tension in religious realism between an omnipotent God and human freedom, and the persisting problem of how an omnipotent and omnibenevolent God can permit evil. Cupid said, To believe in God is simply to declare an intention to be loyal to religious values whatever happens. He wanted to show people a new form of Christianity, one freed from the constraints of outdated superstition and what he called bad metaphysics. For Cupid, the growing sense of scepticism in the West, in part due to the popularity of logical positivism, meant that people were increasingly unable to reconcile the supernatural elements of religion with their experiences of the modern world. According to Cupid, the value of Christianity is to inspire people to live the right life for the right reasons. He argued that we should follow the moral guidance of Jesus Christ because it's right, not because we will be rewarded for it. Cupid's views echoed those of the German theologian Rudolf Bultmann, who in his 1953 book Kerygma and Myth had claimed, it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of demons and spirits. For Boltman, a radical reinterpretation of the Bible was necessary if Christianity was to remain relevant to the modern world. He saw a need to demythologize the Bible, to strip away the layers of metaphor 
and uncover the truths which lay at the heart of the gospel narrative. We're perhaps more used to talking about myths in the Old Testament as a way of communicating complex ideas to an audience who would otherwise have been unable to understand. The creation story or Noah's Ark are both widely understood to be picture language to illustrate important theological truths such as God's love for humanity or his intelligent design of the evolutionary process. However, instead of cherry-picking what ought to be understood as myth and what should be taken as literal truth, Boltman called for a total demythologizing. From the virgin birth, through the miracle accounts, to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. For Boltman, the historical aspects of these stories were irrelevant. What mattered was the truth which each of them illustrated. For Boltman, the birth and infancy narratives in the Gospel of Luke were myths about the possibility of finding God even in the most humble of places. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, instead of being an historical miracle, becomes an illustration of the need to share, a call to lead an agapeistic life, and a depiction of the social harmony which would result if all lived the right way. The healing of the blind in John chapter 9 becomes a metaphor for having our eyes opened to the truth of the moral message of the gospel, living in the right way and following the example set by Christ. For Boltman, the abiding truth of the gospel message, the kerygma, is locked within the text and it's the job of the believer to locate and release it. Again, many Christians would be fairly comfortable with this kind of interpretation. However, most would draw the line at suggesting that the incarnation, crucifixion and resurrection of Christ are also myth. For John Hick, these too need to be demythologized. In his 1977 book, The Myth of God Incarnate, Hick suggests that Jesus was not in fact God in human form, but a symbol expressing the way in which God intends humans to be, the ideal, the one who has achieved the likeness of God, which we should all strive towards. For Hick, the resurrection becomes symbolic of the newness of life achieved when a person begins to live in the right way. It's not intended to be regarded as a historical event. John Hick is not an anti-realist. His theodicy demands that an afterlife, an ultimate reconciliation with God, is a real prospect. He's a pluralist. Hick believes that all religions are essentially different paths up the mountain, and the path that you find yourself on is an accident of your birth. Cupid and other anti-realists are denying that there's a mountain at all. Instead, what Cupid is suggesting is that faith is a freely undertaken commitment to live by certain values and strive towards a particular moral standard. It's a commitment to live a life exemplified by the fictional figure of Jesus. For Cupid, the fact that there is no God dishing out judgments and punishments or rewards means that there's no threat to our freedom or moral autonomy. There's no question that I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons, or whether I'm doing it to secure my place in heaven. He says, it is the highest degree of dispassionate compassion, selfless self-awareness. Every action and decision is my own, 
freely made. And Christianity is an expression of morality, a mode of existence, of life governed by love and ethics and the quality of existence that comes with it. Now, this idea resonates with those of D.Z. Phillips and Stuart Sutherland. In his 1970 book, Death and Immortality, D.Z. Phillips says the term eternal life should not be understood in terms of living forever, but as expressing a quality of existence achievable in the present. Phillips, along with Sutherland, argues that biblical references to eternal life are not intended to be understood as more life after death, but instead should be understood as a quality of existence. The human experience is not about securing a place in heaven, but about establishing the kingdom of God on earth. It's about striving to achieve our potential as moral beings. Therefore, being in the kingdom is not a physical reference to an afterlife. It means adopting the correct moral attitude. In Luke 17, 21, Jesus says, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. D.Z. Phillips here is presenting the idea of the kingdom of God from an anti-realist perspective. The kingdom of God is a present reality, a moral attitude adopted by those who choose to live their life according to the ideals of Christianity. The purpose of human existence is to work towards establishing the kind of world where all humans can flourish and achieve their potential as moral beings. The extent to which you achieve this potential is what determines the value of your life. Here, like Cupid, Phillips is pushing back against the idea that the purpose of the Christian life is to get to heaven. Because if heaven, God and angels, etc. have no external reality, Christianity is just one way of expressing and illustrating values which are true for me. The point is, there's no one correct interpretation of the gospel narrative. It's up to the reader to find their own meaning within the text, to identify, reflect upon and claim ownership of the call to action. And it's this which is so appealing to many Dutch churchgoers. Dini van Weingarten is among lay people attracted to such free thinking. She says, I think it's very liberating. We are using the Bible in a metaphorical way so I can bring it to my own way of thinking, my own way of doing. In this way, the truths of Christianity become whatever is true for you. Far from being objective and verifiable, truth becomes personal subjective and relative to the individual. This is, of course, the way in which Wittgenstein, in his later philosophy of language games, claimed that truth works. When a religious believer says God exists, they are confirming their belief in God as a reality in their life, something which is true for them. It's a declaration of faith. And unless you are a believer, you cannot understand what this really means. It comes down to a particular way in which you perceive the world, the particular form of life to which you subscribe or belong. In this way then, for the religious believer, the statement God exists means much more than there is a God, 
as the realists may suppose, it's a positive affirmation that they're entering into a life of faith and committing to the impact such a faith will have on the way in which they interpret their life experiences. So actually, for an anti-realist, God is really not just an imaginary friend, and the concept goes beyond being just a frivolous figment of the imagination. God becomes the sum of all our values and a symbol of the ultimate goal of human endeavour. But what is the point? The realist will ask, what is the point in striving to follow the path laid down by Jesus and portrayed in the Gospels if there is no ultimate purpose, no justification and no divine consequences if we fail? Carl Jung can perhaps provide an answer to this. For Jung, God is an archetype, a universal symbol or blueprint which is found in our collective unconscious. The human mind is wired in such a way as to be predisposed to religious belief. The fact that all cultures globally have some kind of God indicated to Jung that being religious is fundamental to the human condition. The God archetype is projected into culturally shaped images of what God is like, Yahweh, Brahman, Allah, etc. Jung believed that the different aspects of the mind and personality need balancing as we grow, and it's necessary to find expression for each of the 12 archetypes that Jung identified. These archetypes or characters we find easy to identify and relate to within stories, folklore, cultures, and of course, religion, precisely because they resonate with the archetypes found within our unconscious mind. The God archetype is of a perfect, all-powerful being. Therefore, all human beings have the God within and are naturally religious. God may not have any external reality, but the belief in God and the expression of so many different archetypes through religion means that we're less likely to suffer from neurosis if we're religious. Like Cupid argues, we choose to be religious because it is better so to be. However, to live life as if there is a God, and as if there is a final judgment, is to live under a misapprehension. John Paul Sartre was an existentialist. His main concerns were being and ethics. In 1943, Sartre published Being and Nothingness, in which he identified two main ways in which people can live, either authentically or in a state of self-deception, which Sartre called bad faith. Sartre said most people believe there are laws or moral codes written into society. These laws might be formed perhaps by God or perhaps by human nature. However, according to Sartre, there is no God and there is no such thing as human nature. This means that there is no real basis or authority behind the laws which we live by. We're deluding ourselves, that is, living in bad faith, if we think otherwise. The great tragedy of human experience, according to Sartre, was for people to live inauthentically. People spending their lives as if they have no option to do otherwise, like robots. The goal of human life, according to Sartre, is to live authentically, that is, of our own choosing, shaping our character 
and giving meaning to our own existence. Like Heidegger before him, Sartre focused on identifying yourself as an individual and living your own personal, individual, authentic existence. Maybe this is not far from what Cupid was arguing though. For Cupid, the Bible and the life and example set by Jesus are just stories to guide us and inspire us. There's no central kernel of truth there, as John Hick would argue there is. So essentially it is up to us. We can't rely upon something other to sort it all out for us. We are completely and totally autonomous and responsible for our actions. In deciding what we ought to do, how we ought to live, and face the consequences if we don't, that is the consequences of moral evil and the knowledge that we have failed ourselves in failing to live up to the standards we set. There are many appealing aspects of Cupid's anti-realism. The emphasis on doing good and having the right motivation in doing so. The fact that the problem of evil becomes a moot point as there is only moral evil and only humans who are responsible for it and its ultimate compatibility with the modern world. However, the denial of the central truth of the crucifixion and resurrection may be a step too far for the majority of religious believers. After all, once everything else is stripped away, we're left with just one half of the golden rule, love your neighbour. And there'll be plenty of atheists who claim to be able to do that just fine. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this meander around some 20th century philosophy. Questions and comments are always welcome and you can find me both on Twitter and Facebook as A Level RE. See you next time.